Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today and engage with Shiba's work. And I think the way I'd like to structure this is to just begin with some of my responses to this show and then ask Shiba some questions and then throw it open to all of you. Um, and I think, you know, basically there's one thing which I found um, almost surpassing all my other responses, and that was a kind of extraordinary tension between uh, beauty and ecological disaster. And it seemed to me that there was a kind of aesthetic of contrast that was at work here. But more than that, it was a theater of contrast. And that you were actually then going to build you know, many layers between these two. But somehow, the two didn't you know, really, neither one surpassed the other. And so I began to think, you know, since I've been thinking about it since your show opened, and I was wondering what it is that beauty does here. And at some levels it works, you know, in ways which are familiar. You know, it makes um, the scenes of disaster more poignant. It somehow introduces or reintroduces, you know, a notion of the human there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the images are flattened images, they are transparencies. And they, they, they suggest some historical transformation of images of beauty at the same time. So it's like as if these images are stilled, but they are not stilled. And there again, I think some very delicate things are happening you know, in each box, which perhaps you'd actually like to hold forth on uh, for a while. And then again, the beauty works as a reminder, as a loss. Again, you know, things which we're very familiar with. But something else is again, I think, happening there, which is that though these are clearly reworked images, um, they're, they're you know, very deeply anchored in particular art historical moments. And at the same time, you know, the, 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 the astonishment they arouse comes from the otherness of historical memory. It's as if it's, you know, it's no longer real. It doesn't really, you know, it's, it's not familiar. And I think this is something which I thought, again, I would want you to talk about. Because if beauty evokes not simply the beauty of the past, which would be the most literal reading, and I think a very banal and vulgar one, but actually the otherness, the alternateness, the not-thereness, as it were. And I was thinking about this you know, more because from the 1970s, there's been a kind of devaluation of beauty. I mean, this has come from feminists like us as well, so we, we are hardly not implicated in this process. And it's also come from conceptualism in the arts, and it has a long left tradition, anti-canonicism. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons why you know, beauty then became almost a bad word. And um, then it also began to signify the Philistine market. And in some sense then, you know, beauty was almost seen to you know, be a category that was opposed to forms of complex conceptualism. And I think that's exactly what breaks down here in, in, in your show. You can't oppose them in that way. And, um, I think some of the reasons why that's happening is because the way you know, the work positions itself in relationship to globalization. Uh, I mean, at some level, you know, all these images of the culled birds, for instance. 
So they could signify the kind of homogenization that globalization is imposing, in a sense, uh, on a vast array of times, spaces, and cultural memories. And yet, one can only understand that movement of homogenization through this vast array of time, spaces, and cultural memories, you know, where your marker is particularly Asian. In, in this case. So in a sense, that refracts the homogeneity. You know, it, you know, and the two again seem to stand in a kind of will tension where the one doesn't overtake the other. Um, so beauty in that sense seems to me to signal that periphery, you know, that um, a periphery that has been created by mass industrialization, in a sense, uh, the global food market, and yet constantly returns as a haunting specter. You know, the, 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 the different kinds of birds do this all the time. You know, I mean, some of them hang upside down and have, you know, clearly, in a sense, been decimated in all but the spirit. And then some of them have been, you know, stilled and frozen. And yet they seem to have, you know, kind of inexorable moment of return again and again. So, so in, in, in a way that, and, and you see that in the, in the bees as well. And so the periphery, in a sense, then seems to signify here the destruction of terms of reference that, are, that cannot be accommodated within global marketplaces. You know, they are, in a sense, its alterity, and yet they're also its subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I thought beauty then worked for me partly allegorically, you know, as a sign of colonized and overridden space that can become a sign of spectrality or become a form of spectrality, to be more accurate. Um, and then again, I thought very complex things were happening in relationship to, let's say, the food market and the image market and the mediatized image you know, that you see. I mean, some of the images seem to actually come straight from television, newspaper photographs. Uh, and I thought you might want to tell us actually more about, you know, how you thought about, you know, these two kinds of, these two kinds of images. Uh, again, I thought, you know, one of the um, suspicions we've had of beauty has been that it is so clearly marked an exoticism, an orientalized other, and there's been a long market for that actually for the past few centuries in, almost. Um, and then again, you know, beauty retrieved as an ethnic mark, as a regional mark, um, as a kind of, you know, gesture towards a traditional repertoire, which was then now going to be, you know, replayed into a new conjuncture. But in fact, again, I thought your work was very interesting in that respect. She might start doing any of these things. What seems to me to be you know, happening here is that beauty is a structural coordinate of ecological disaster, uh, a means of apprehending it. And in that sense, you carry the two together in a way which is quite unique and um, actually opens up ways of thinking which would be, I think, quite new. Um, because in any case, it's re-entering beauty into a new system of meaning. So I thought the proposition here, you know, it would be, again, a vulgar way of reading the work would be to say, is this loss? Is this nostalgia? Is it like, you know, do we see all these beautiful images from myth and, and, and the birds and the soul? And, 
you know, the whole weight of the metaphysic, the spirituality, do we simply see that as, you know, a site of loss and possible recovery? But I don't think that's what's happening here. Because what you're actually doing is that you're juxtaposing a pre-capitalist, pre-modern cultural hybridity. You know, all the images that come out of Asia are already sites of exchange and interchange. You know, none of those. You can actually, in some of the images, you can almost spot how they change as they went from country to country in South Asia. Uh, and these are images of you know, pre-modern border crossings. You, know, you have this committed travel of the pilgrims who now have no heads and hold video boxes. You have the travel of you know, the bird slash spirit. Um, you have music, which you know, again seems to, I think, you know, be very resonant as a form of border crossing and pre-modern travel. Um, and then on the other side, you have a kind of very carnivorous self and other consuming form of exchange which is coming up with the neoliberal market. You know, with, with the, so, and, and what lies beneath you know, that kind of consuming exchange, which is also, also self-destructive and you know, in other, lies underneath what seem to be you know, the technical grammars and cultural grammars of you know, cultural exchange now you know, under the auspices of globalization. So in some sense, what's really happening is that you're not attaching pure moments to, you know, any part of this, any part of this spectrum. Uh, and in fact, the, you know, the way you've reworked the images also seem to be, you know, make them into composite images. I mean, you're actually in some sense inventing uh, cultural memory for Asia. Um, and I think, therefore, you know, what I feel quite interested here about is uh, that the way you're thinking about the global is coming out in two or three ways. One is as obviously a thematic. I mean, you have the colonial ships and you have pre-modern forms of travel and exchange, and then you have clearly what is very contemporary, you know, from the satellite image which can purview space you know, to the chickens, which can go to any kind of market. Uh, the other way is thinking about it as a problem of reproduction, uh, you know, generational reproduction. And I think that's where that particular intersection of ecological catastrophe and beauty, you know, seems to really be thinking about reproduction in its many layers and many meanings, I think, which include meanings which are not just ecological, but also feminist and political in uh, different ways. And I think there's also a question of the seasonal and the unseasonal, which keeps coming up. You know, seasonal migration, unseasonal <laughs> diets, as it were. Um, and the, the second, I think, way one, you know, that globalization seems to work here is, you know, in a more formal way. I mean, one thinks about mediatic forms as being now with globalization an extension of the virtual. And in a sense, I think, um, you know, this entire show is about the thinning of presence and the surfacing of the virtual. Mm -hmm. And, but it's itself imbricated in the technologies, you know, of navigation and dilution. And so in a way, what you have here is an attempt to restore presence 
but then put a question mark against it. But the attempt to restore presence and the use of virtuality, you know, is again, I thought, a very interesting way in which it becomes, you know, the formal subset of that tension between economic catastrophe and thinking about beauty. Um, and, and, and the last thing I would want to say is about the form of the box. Now, clearly there are many of you here who will say far more interesting things about boxes and screens and screens in boxes than I can or will. But I did actually you know, think a little bit about the box as you use it as a site of flow forms and as a means of enclosure. I mean, that to me was sort of constantly, you know, the pressure that that form is putting on, you know, you. I, it's almost the address is constantly, you know, uh, trying to work out the relationship between flow and enclosure. And I th then thought here, I mean, I asked myself, is this really part of the way I'm reading your work? Is it, again, an attempt to recapture meaning? Uh, you know, there is an insistence on, on a semantic here, an insistence on the meaning of meaning, the importance of meaning, which in a sense almost disrupts the postmodernist elements in the work, you know, and throws them back into another kind of doubt. Uh, so in some sense, the beauty then becomes a path to rediscover a meaning that appears, disappears, and, and that elusiveness, but is governed by a very strong technology of duration. You know, you can time to the, to the minute, you know, when the image will appear and disappear. So again, I thought there were, you know, ways of thinking about, you know, the kind of stabilization that you do, even as you're fighting against, you know, certain forms of time by insisting on duration, but you're also fixing that duration. So that becomes, you know, another kind of enclosure. I mean, there's the enclosure of the box, there's the enclosure of the ticking clock. And, I mean, that's just a set of responses. And I wondered, you know, in fact, I'd invite you to talk about any and all, or all of these. Well, let me respond to the question of time, because one of the reasons I grew very interested in this object is because of the quality of time it creates. We're in a period where we're in inundated by the moving image and by the still image. Um, the moving image, cinema, television, video art, all of it actually has um, a deterministic time. It's a time that you can only receive. The still photograph, in fact, has a long history of holding time within itself. But people, as they read and respond to photographs, I find increasingly behave as though they're flicking through the pages of a magazine. You know, I think of this gallery walk where they go very fast. And because they feel they've got the information in the image, they feel they've seen the photograph. And what's got lost is uh, time, is, is spending time, is entering the time within the photograph. So this, because it is neither moving nor still, it's in fact fake movement, it's illusory movement. It is the idea of movement created through physically moving a still. It's not actually a moving image. It's a still image that is moved by mechanical means. It creates something in between, another quality of time. And I watch people, I watch bodies as they look at the work, and there is this slowing down. And there is that, what you call the enclosure and the fixing of duration, 
uh, works in both ways because the repeated loop and the fact that you're actually seeing the shadow of the coming image behind before it actually appears in front of you uh, creates a peculiar expectation and people then began to um, they begin to watch and in each watching and in each turning of the loop new relations uh, get created between the moving layer and the still layer. So within very, uh, very economical and actually very simple means, a number of possibilities of time open up. Uh, despite the various difficulties that this simple mechanism gives, and I can tell you we've gone nuts shifting from 220 volts to 110 volts and transformers blowing up and smoke coming out of light boxes, all this has happened. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, it still holds, every time I say no more light boxes, I've had it. But there's something to do with this, with this capacity to create an in-between space, open up both uh, reflection, perception, and the possibility of time. Uh, that's I think it's one of the primary reasons I stay attached to this object. It also because of scrolling, uh, which harkens back to very, very old pre-cinematic devices, whether we think of folk forms like the scroll painting or even the earliest form of cinema, which is frame-by-frame -frame narrative, which is scrolled. It, it also becomes a very, um, again, simple way of keeping that sense of um, circular, cyclical time rather than linear time. So you don't go from one point to the other point, you come back again and again, and it is a seamless loop. So, and there is the use, very deliberate use of repetition. So at any point, you could be at any point. You're not necessarily in the beginning, the middle, or the end. There's a sense of a continuous flow. A flow which uh, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the things you said, and I'm, I have to think about them. But this thing of entrapment and flow, this uh, is perhaps, uh, I think, links to the deeper inquiry, the, the concern with our condition as the human species today and our relationship with the Earth. So. The, the work draws from landscape traditions across history. For me, the manner in which landscape gets represented, created, manifest within a particular cultural historical moment uh, constitutes a, a fine marker of the way we stand in relation to, lands, to, to the earth, to the land. So you have the Chinese um, Song Dynasty classic brushing landscape uh, you have, but each of these images are not simply reproductions of these various landscape traditions, but actually fabrications. They are inventions. They are drawn from these traditions and then reworked, manipulated, and brought into dialogue with images which are from possibly a different historical period, but which pertain to a kind of movement across Asia. One of the things that I got very interested in was, you know, we tend to think of globalization as something happening to Asia from the West, that the West is globalizing the world. And I really wanted to think about globalization and exchange, and I would actually come to the word cosmopolitanism, where you had a very rich history of exchange, not 
completely harmonious with its own set of conflicts. But from the sixth century monks that, and pilgrims that carried texts and Buddhist scripture all the way to Japan, to the uh, kitsch little fish lamp TV objects, which flood the Indian market today as Chinese imports, all bearers of particular articulations of landscape and in that sense particular articulations of the human spirit in relation to the earth. Uh, these for me became uh, an important way of mapping a history that we tend to forget. So in fact the homogenizing which is it's become a catchword that globalization homogenizes that the market flattens out that everything becomes ultimately replicable. Uh, what, what I found really interesting was if I was following a particular fable or a myth about a bird, birds, I'll, I'll say a little about why, birds became for me a key metaphor which could help me journey across these various cultures and these periods of histories. Uh, if I found a story in Persia, uh, I started off, let me say this, uh, to looking at exchanges between India and China. That was the beginning. But you can't do this without going to Persia and Japan. So it's almost that the material itself expanded the canvas. Uh, if I was interested in a folk tale or a fable which had a bird as a central protagonist, I would find the same bird with similar qualities, perhaps a different name, appearing across. So if you have the Simurgin Iran, it would reappear as the or the phoenix in China, the hoo-hoo in Japan, etc. And with similar, with often quite uh, different formal characteristics, but with similar metaphoric uh, attributes. And this for me was really exciting because you have this sense of this post uh, turn of the century separation of nations and cultures, and we see ourselves as very distinct. This is Indian, this is Chinese, this is Persian or Iranian or whatever, and there is an increasing fragmentation and um, a lot to do with this increasing need to assert particularity and identity in the fabric of the flattening of globalization. I mean, that is resisted by an insistence on the particular. So that particularity actually seemed to have moved historically, creating very rich hybridities. So you could not say that the figure of the Simurg was only Persian. It is Persian, it is also Indian, it is also that. Not to dissolve the differences, but to say that when it comes to India, it becomes something else, acquires another quality, moves on perhaps differently. In one of the light boxes, you have uh, the peacocks moving across uh, a landscape, which is a photographic landscape from Ladakh, but it evokes um, Central Asia, which was one of the key um, <clears throat> terrains through which uh, much of this exchange uh, traversed. And you, you would find there a kind of little history of the bird-headed lute, the musical instrument, which goes from the rabab in Afghanistan to the pipa in China. Uh, I actually have a collection of about 17 to 19 forms of this same instrument which change slightly, and by the time you come to uh, China, the musical structure has come down to the five-note structure, losing the quarter tones and the half tones that we have in uh, Persia and India. 
The, the soundtrack, by the way, actually works with some of these movements, the shifts in structure as well as the metaphor of the birds. Uh, so for me, it became a way of mapping, looking at the stuff of what we consider to be Asian and a different sightline into the idea of globalization, uh, a kind of resistance to homogenization as being the only marker of globalization. Uh, let me loop back to one of the main reasons that this uh, work happened. In the period when I was thinking a lot about globalization, about Asian globalization, was also a time when there was this panic about avian flu and it was called the Asian flu, the avian flu. Uh, China, Thailand, uh, that whole belt was severely affected. And there was this kind of panic within Europe about these migratory birds, wild migratory birds, carrying the virus into Europe. The first bird that was killed because it was suspected of carrying the virus was a wild swan in Scotland. And this for me was uh, an extraordinary moment when I read about it because the swan within most Asian cultural traditions is a metaphor for wisdom and the wisdom of discrimination. They say the swan can separate milk from water. And here there was this complete panic which translates I think also into uh, anxiety about migrating peoples. The birds were... Uh, and in, for the first time in history, they actually tried to control the migration of birds. They, they tried all kinds of devices. They clipped things on them to try and trace their movements so that they could prevent the virus from spreading. Interestingly, the virus is actually produced by absolutely inhuman breeding practices to do with poultry, with edible birds, actually begun in the US and in Europe and then adopted by many other countries. And that is the genesis of the virus. The virus lies dormant in all avian species and only surfaces as a disease which is harmful to humans in, in these conditions. So this became for me a kind of um, very potent metaphor for what was happening in these ideas of movement, exchange, and then the sheer murder. Thousands and thousands and millions of birds were actually murdered uh, at that time because of this panic. I mean, not that I think people should eat infected birds and die, but that it, at, at the level of uh, the myth, at the level of what is happening within the kind of psychological, social, psychic space, uh, there is this, um, it's, it's, it's actually extremely disturbing. Uh, this, the uh, light box, which is an adaptation of, uh, I think, an object which is uh, fairly interesting. Uh, it, it, it contains within itself many of the things we're talking about. It's called, um, I mean, what you see is an adapted form, but what it's called is a plasma action TV toy. And it's made in China. It is completely fake. It's a simulacra. It fakes a plasma action TV. It has this illusory movement, and it has these fabricated landscapes, some of which you see in the little boxes being held by the ropes. So you have Golden Gate Bridge, fighter planes, dolphins, tigers basking in the sun, all in a kind of fantasy utopia. As, as 
notions of nature that ordinary people buy and place in their homes. So this highly mediated idea of urban or pastoral landscape, in fact, collage together in, seamlessly, becomes, in a sense, the mark of the manner of representation of landscape today at a very ordinary, popular, lowbrow level. And at the other level is the satellite image, which I work with very much in this piece. Um, yeah, I don't know now where so I'm going. So there is a way <laughs> in which actually there are different kinds of morphing happening, aren't they? There is a kind of slow historical move as one musical instrument changes slightly as, you know, from one region to another. And that's a morphing over time, over space. It seems to, you know, answer to, you know, notions of form, of musical grammars. And then you have, you know, the kind of morphing that might be happening, you know, with, with, with the way you yourself used and reworked the images. And then you have the morphing which is happening with the very notion of landscape as popular. So in some sense, I think what you're, what you're perhaps moving towards saying is that there are many levels of change, you know, which seem to have slow historical movements or they seem to have rapid you know, and vivid economic agency attached to them. And at the same time, there is the agency of the cultural practitioner, you know, who's trying to bring these timescales into, you know, one set of related forms. If you looked at the um, image which has the crows going over it, the red, apparently Mughal miniature, it's actually a fabricated miniature where I've used elements from uh, from original Mughal miniatures, but worked very much with the edge of that painting tradition where you have the first hint of perspective. So if you look at the uh, upper edge of that image, you have ships and the first hint at something that's moving out of the classical miniature tradition. And that leads you, in a way, into the next image which has the uh, expanding colonial empires, the ships, mm. and the Kaha bird. The Kaha bird is an interesting story. Maybe I'll just tell a story to take a little digression into fable. Um, there was a poor fisherman who would fish every day and actually could barely get enough fish to eat. So one day as he sat there despondent, having achieved nothing the whole day, this ex absolutely gorgeous, fabulous blue bird came and sat by him and said, why are you so sad? And he said, this is the problem. So she said, I give you a boon and may your basket always be full. And so it was. His basket was full. He had enough for himself. His wife slowly built a house, slowly began to make a profit, did very well indeed. And she would appear every now and again and grant him these boons and wishes. Now the king got to hear of this miraculous bird who was bestowing her blessings and riches on this poor fisherman. And he announced an award for the capture of this bird. He wanted this bird. So the fisherman got greedy and conspired with the king and the king's soldiers to trap the bird. So the next time the bird came to visit, he said, you have never eaten at my house, so come and eat. You've given me all these years, and I'd like to at least offer you a meal. So she agrees. And when she arrives, the soldiers are hiding in the bushes, and they leap out to try and catch her, and she immediately realizes, and is absolutely deeply horrified and disgusted. And as she tries to rise up again, he grabs hold of her talons, 
and she rises up with him dangling from the talons and disappears, saying she'll have nothing to do with human beings ever again. It's a bird that you find recurring across this entire terrain. And for me, it's very much about, about greed and about shifting from this anthropocentric view where we as human beings have the primary right to occupy the earth. And it, it kind of turns it around. Hmm. So, so that actually brings me to then, you know, this, your political formation, Shiva. You know, one of the things which has been so striking about contemporary Indian art, and perhaps this would be true not just of India, but many parts of South Asia, is, you know, how deeply political the impetus for that art has been, even though it may take many different forms. I mean, I remember one exhibition which was done um, a few years ago by Sehmet. I think Geeta Kapoor curated it which was looking at art in the wake of the destruction of the Babri Masjid. Ways of resistance. Ways of resistance. And it was the most extraordinary thing. I mean, almost every Indian artist one could think of had responded in one way or another you know, to this event. And in the most diverse ways, I remember seeing your Kashmir show in that, in that exhibition. So, th so there is a sense in which what I find particularly, I think, Actually, I don't know, you know whether one should talk about it comparatively at all, but what is particularly, it seems to me, marked in South Asia is that you know, political art should take so many different forms, that it's no longer you know, art, the art of propaganda, you know, the, the, immediately, the immediate image for resistance, it's not poster art, you know, the classic art forms that we associate with political movements. And yet at the same time, the trajectory of so many artists like you, for instance, has been through feminism, through uh, protesting about um, nuclear weapons, um, anti-communalism, the whole Kashmir issue. And then I remember your interest in the environment, I think, began with Neil Kant, at least in, its, in a fully crystallized way, and now this. So in a sense, there is a way in which there, this is no mere representation of political movements, but uh, politics of representation that is being played out at, in, you know, in multiple ways and in different intersections with different artists and different practitioners. So what I wanted to ask you, Shiba, was not to necessarily trace a history of your own political formation, but in fact maybe to tell us um, what you feel about representing a so-called collectivity, you know, without which no political art form of art takes place. I mean, no political art is on behalf of individuals, and yet practitioners are, you know, utterly and, you know, um, profoundly individual. So what is that pressure? What is that, what shapes it? What makes you think, that, you know, what do you seek to represent? What do you actually represent? What are the difficulties of representing, you know, a collective? What makes one you know, how do you start redefining the political in works such as Wing Pilgrims? I think I would say that one of the reasons I go to this is because it is, uh, it is an expression of the collective uh, in, in one sense. So myth becomes an important source uh, which is in a not contained only within this particular social and political moment, 
but has uh, a, broader, a broader span. When I say myth, I would include the myths uh, embodied or embedded in this kind of crazy utopian kitchenage, uh, as well as the other myths that I draw upon, myths about birds and etc. Uh, so that's one layer of, of the collective. There is the other layer of the collective, which is simply what you inhabit as a social being, as a politicized social being. So I am somebody who engages with a number of groups, uh, collectivities, and am implicated in, in the politics and in the critique that emerges from those groups, and that is inevitably part of my practice. There's, uh, for me, no separation there. Uh, I have often, this is something that is so basic to me because my political practice has been part of my life. Uh, I think even before I would describe myself as having an established artistic practice, I would have an established political practice. So for me, they are, they are integrated. There's not a separation. Uh, it's not so much, I mean, I think there are a number of artists who may not have that kind of activist self, but who are political in their response to what they see around and the way they comment upon uh, what is happening to the world around them, the world around us. But I think that there is a difference uh, with this kind of engagement. There would be things that have mattered very uh, deeply to me which have not manifested in any art where I've worked uh, in completely different ways. They would be work which is um, found a particular artwork, an installation, or a set of images as the most satisfying way of addressing that concern and the mm -hmm. complexity of that concern. One of my dissatisfactions with working with um, media communication means within the activist frame was the demand for simple communication. Mm -hmm. And I actually moved increasingly towards the space of art because it offered the possibility of opening a complex conversation, a conversation which had many more layers, many ambiguities where doubt could be uh, kept rather than resolved because of the need for a certain kind of political action. I don't know if that answers... No, it so does, but in fact, I mean, I'll ask you one last question and then we can open this up. I mean, what... Because of, I think, this you know, very intense politicization of you know, various cultural forms in India, on the one hand, and on the, one hand, you know, on the other hand, you have also uh, an intense commodification of art, and the two things seem to have almost gone hand in hand in the past two or three decades. I wanted to know what was, an, what was the nature of the things you resisted in this formation. I mean, there are certain forms of political statement, for instance, which you obviously do not make here, and this is of a level of complexity which defies actually a simple political statement. So the, the, were there models, were there precursors whom you resisted? You know, things that you didn't want to be or become in order to find yourself. Because the other thing which I think makes your trajectory uncommon is that you're one of the few people in India who have actually grown up within the medium of the installation. You know, installation practice is really your formative medium. Many other people who, who make installations have actually moved from conventional art to installations, and therefore they carry painterly traditions and you know, other things into it. So, so in some sense, you, you went, I think, directly to the installation. 
Well, in a sense, uh, coming from photography, photography. but almost mm -hmm. immediately uh, mm -hmm. doing photo-based installation. I think for me, it was, it probably is one of the reasons I came into the art space, because it offered me the possibility of holding together the various forms that have been crucial to my thinking, uh, whether it's sculptural form, uh, images, texts, sound. Uh, these things are things that I have always worked with. And I finally had an arena within which I could actually work them in together. So in, if you look at installation art within Indian practice, early 90s, there are about five people. And I come in out of the blue. I don't come from a conventional art background. I don't come from art college. But this is like a, a space that is of great excitement and delight for me. So it's, it's quite interesting to, to see that moment. Of course, today it's quite transformed. Well, questions and responses to Shiba and her work. Yeah, go ahead. say something maybe about how this, how in some ways you are creating this kind of other landscape that perhaps critiques the kind of, the homogenized landscape of globalization or, or that narrative rather. Well, I, I would say that by um, offering the possibility of entering the landscape with a different kind of temporality, uh, I, I, I create the potential or the possibility for another landscape. I don't think I actually create another landscape unless you think of the entire installation as a landscape, which is another way also of reading it. So I would, I would think of the entire work as a landscape within which there are, uh, they are particular temporalities, there are, they are gestures towards the over-mediatized, homogenized image, there are gestures towards other kinds of images, and they, along with the viewer, inhabit and create perhaps a site of consideration. So the other landscape would exist somewhere between the mind of the viewer and the landscape of the installation. sense these boxes again represent mortality and the transcendental figures floating um, um, you know sort of break out of that box and uh, I find the work incredibly spiritual I have to say so uh, for me it was almost interesting to hear Kum Kum talk and I, I saw the political dimension I have to say much after the fact because I do see the ecological damage and the, the lands you know the damage in the landscapes and uh, all these symbols of migration and globalization, but for me, it just took me to a very, very spiritual, spiritual transcendental space. So I was wondering if uh, at some level you've, you thought about meditation or uh, did that somehow come in here, a, a, more, a more spiritual connection to the images when you chose them? 
uh, or uh, was it looking at art history and looking at images in our art history? How did you decide to, in a certain frame, bring, bring, a, bring in four, four or five images? What were some of the choices that you were intuitively making? See, the bird has always been a metaphor for the transcendent in cultures across the world. Uh, if you in Bengal, you have this idea of this ochinpaki, the bird that lives within you, who is your true self, and the one you never get to know. So the bird is a highly coded spiritual metaphor. And for me, when I'm working with the bird, I'm working both with ideas of migration, with the politics of migration, with the brutality of the murder that happened around avian flu, and the spiritual dimension. Because for me, the transcendent is, uh, I, I, I'm uncomfortable using transcendent because it seems to imply a negation of matter. Uh, I am more interested in a very embodied kind of spirituality where, where the energy, uh, matter, energy manifests in various different material forms, different materialities, uh, all which would be charged in particular ways. So yes, and for me there is not a contradiction between the political and the spiritual, which is an unfortunate binary that gets set up. I think there's a question there. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to ask a little bit, when I was looking at the pieces, I thought often that we were looking at the ground and the landscape from the perspective of the bird and the birds, and I wondered if that was something that you thought about and wanted to put the viewer in the position of birds looking at the ground and sort of feeling that, that space and having a completely different view and look at the land. Um, and then my second question is about the, the pieces with, that are being held by the robes. It, it reminded me of tourism postcards and tourist postcards, and I wondered if that yes, was part absolutely. of Thank you. Yes, I mean, these are very much kitsch, uh, ready-made objects, which I think I've talked a little bit about already. In that sense, they are postcards, they are globalized, flattened out, uh, images, but they begin to constitute ideas of, of landscape. So for me, they become interesting in that. The, the thing of a bird's eye view, I play with that. It's not something that I would say is uh, in each and every image. It is in some and it's not in some. But in fact, in this work, which is a work that is most recent, it's made now, finished last month. So it is, uh, it's something that's connected to, but in a sense separate from winged pilgrims. And here I'm really working with that perspective. Uh, between these two works is another set of works which work with the satellite image. I use satellite images of um, ecological disasters, the Balakot earthquake, the coming drought in Myanmar, the Gangetic Delta and the flooding of the floodplains. And this is a satellite image of Delhi, um, the, actually the, the banks of the Yamuna going up to Agra. So that building is the Taj Mahal, seen from the perspective of a, a satellite image. And for me, this, this I, when you look at even your own city uh, through an image like this, your relationship to it is fundamentally altered. It's very, very different. Uh, it, 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 uh, yeah, I, I think it, is, it becomes very different. And what does that difference constitute? How is that actually 
working and shaping the way we are, the way we actually inhabit our cities and our homes is something that I'm very interested in. So in this image you have a kind of collapsing of times. You have this most sort of state-of-the-art form of landscape imagery, which is the satellite image, but surfacing through it from underneath are memories of the ancient. For me, um, Delhi, the city that I live in, and, uh, and, and the Yamuna River, is replete with uh, very rich history. So you have a yogini singing by the banks of the river, and they still do, even though she is filthy and polluted and black and the dirtiest river in the world, music still happens on the banks. Uh, or memories of wells bathing, a memory of the dry, dusty land of Delhi and its perhaps return to a waterless place because the water is disappearing. The water itself being more like industrial sludge and uh, the nagas, the snake, um, these are the Nadkanya is a snake, uh, how do you translate that? Uh, snake women. Snake women or guardians, snake, female snake guardians. Somehow sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of, the, of water and of what lies beneath. Uh, rise in a kind of peculiar manner. Uh, almost prophetic uh, of the time to come. So in, in, in this I'm kind of collapsing many times together into one space, into one, uh, one moment. Uh, I think that it's also about um, synchronic notion of time as opposed to a diachronic. I think that runs through the entire work. Uh, this, I, this is something I feel very strongly about. And I think a lot of, uh, for me this is deeply political to resist a diachronic notion of time. I see that conception of time is underlying uh, much of what we are encountering today. In fact, that's interesting because when I saw this image, I thought it's partly, you know, a satellite image is so much an overhead image, right? It's actually the newest form of the panopticon. Absolutely. You know, that which can see more and more. And it's a position of great power. And a position of where power. Where everything else is made right. small, diminutive, hmm. helpless. But, yeah. the, but the rest of the image itself also suggests archaeology. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, are these the seven cities underneath Delhi? You know, Delhi is supposed to have had seven other cities. And, the, and you can see the layers in the Purana. There are seven Nagkanyas. And I doubted the <laughs> Nagkanyas, I must confess. And I thought, could be, could be. So there is a way in which it's also archaeological and panoptical, which I think is, again, a very interesting conjunction of time and space. And it's a peculiar play with view, with, uh, with perspective. With because perspective, that's one of the yeah. things I do throughout is, is play with that, with conventional uh, views and kind of turn them around. It, it's quite strange to have um, the figures and the kind of view you have of those figures juxtaposed with the um, satellite view, etc. The figures themselves are mutants. They, the piece is called Locust Time, and they're in Shalabhasan, which is a yogasan based on the locust pose. Uh, which plays with, again, the idea locusts come at the time of destruction, bearing destruction in their wake, but the, uh, the posture actually is a regenerative posture. Uh, they themselves are kind of in some strange point of mutation where you can begin, the flesh has become transparent. You see the skeleton through the body in certain parts, and they seem to scan the surface almost as though they were 
holders of the panoptical view, but they're completely um, implicated within that space. Yeah. So it's, it's again both together rather than one or the other. So are there other questions? Or? They, they kind of leap about these things. Yeah, they do. <laughs> she had a question. When experiencing your installation, there's a very heightened sense of drama. There's a real sense of theatricality from the placement of the works themselves to the lighting, the very specific lighting you've chosen, to the light emanating from the boxes themselves. Can you talk a little bit about your interest or background in theater? or the performing arts and how ah, that She's impacts. remembering a <laughs> conversation in a taxi after two drinks. <laughs> well, what we were talking about that day uh, is something that I think hasn't been paid that much attention to, but a number of Indian installation artists actually have roots in theater. So Subodh, for example, came from theater. I myself was very involved with theater and um, worked both as an actor in physical theater and the Grotowskian tradition for a long time. I never chose to become a performer, partly because of the limits of language and what English language theater constitutes within, within India and within Delhi, which is kind of drawing room comedy, just not what I was interested in. Uh, and then actually began working with sets. Uh, long before I did installation, I actually did sets for theater. And there's, uh, I think, a strong affinity between the performative and installation practice, both in its ephemeral nature. Installation does exist only for a limited time and space. It is so here. It will never be the same again. Even the same elements placed in another space will constitute a new installation uh, in the broad sense. Um, so performance is like that. It is of the moment. It is ephemeral. Uh, it's not something that can be contained despite all the video documentation and photographs that we have. There is the constellation of space, of energy, through theatrical means, through both light and the way the body is guided within the space, which again comes from, uh, I think, an understanding of theatre. But maybe you want to talk more about the use of light, if I get Mega's question correctly. Because there is a way in which, you know, you've really played very dramatically with light and a kind of bordello darkness, no, with the color of the walls. <laughs> so uh, I think, and it's also different kinds of light and different kinds of darkness. So in a sense, I think that the drama is coming out, you know, from that interplay of light as much as the images that, you know, are... Um... Very much so. I mean, light is crucial. Uh, light and sound, I, I think. Uh, the sound is also a very important part of creating that sense of dramatic tension. The sound is not continuous. There's a low hum. There's a, a single voice that makes kind of swooping patterns and structured patterns. And then there's silence. And then it repeats again. So that also creates a certain kind of... Uh, a certain, there's a formativity to the soundscape, which is, I think, quite uh, important to the experience of the whole installation. Uh, for me, light, yes, uh, but light is something that is used with every sculpture to dramatic effect. So if one is saying there's something particular connecting installation and theatre, it would be not just light, but the way um, 
Space is articulated in terms of the relation between the body of the viewer and the body of the work. So here the bordello, uh, as you described, not to my mind, uh, is very much about absence. So in a sense, in fact, when we were lighting it, the person who was uh, doing the light kept wanting to light the objects and I kept wanting to light the surround because in a sense I'm creating a nimbus within which there is an absence. It's not about lighting a mm -hmm. present object. Um, these are, I mean, whether you call it theater, whether you call it sculpture or installation, but there are lots of crossovers there which mm -hmm. are interesting to, to trace as connections in practice. So shall we thank Shiva very much? And shall we thank Kumkum very much? <laughs> Thank you, Kumkum. It's been, I know, an enormous yes. effort for you to come it's all the way. It's my pleasure, absolutely. And, and thank you, Mega and Rebecca and Natasha and Arani and Mita and everyone at the gallery. Thank you all. <laughs>